Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Alexa Mix. Today on the panel, we have Alan Weimer. Hello. And myself, Adi Iyengar. We don't have Sasha joining us yet, but we do have a special guest today, Amos King. Did, did I pronounce that right? Yeah, it's, it's Amos. That's cool, Amos, though. Oh, uh, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I've, been, I've been called worse things. It's all right. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Amos, why don't you give our listeners, you know, a rundown of what you do and, you know, why you're so popular and why everyone loves you in the Elixir <laughs> community. <laughs> I didn't know that everybody loved me. So I've been around the Elixir community for a while. I can't even think of what year that I started Elixir. And then three years ago, I think I, we started the Elixir Outlaws podcast, which is a pretty free form, just BSing like you would have in the hallway at a conference. That's kind of the whole idea behind it. And then I run a company called Binary Noggin, where we, we work with different customers, helping them build custom software, either being their team or being part of the team. Pretty big proponent of pair programming, things like that. So that's where the name comes from. And then I just, you know, I think that you guys talked about having me come on a little bit because of a blog post I wrote about embedded systems in Elixir, but it's really like or beam everything. Just put the beam everywhere. That's really what it's about. Awesome. I'm frequently surprised at how many companies are running their apps in production without any way of knowing when things go wrong or who are running them in production and not really having a way of knowing where things are slowing down. That's why I recommend that people use a service like AppSignal. AppSignal plugs into your application seamlessly, whether you're using Rails or Phoenix or something else, and provides you a way of knowing when things go wrong, when things are going slow, and what other problems your application may be facing so that you can fix them and provide a seamless user experience for those who are using your app. So whether you're starting a new app or working on an existing app, you should check out AppSignal and see how it can work for you. Go to AppSignal.com. That's A-P-P-S-I-G-N-A-L.com. I guess let's talk about that blog post a little bit, right? I think it was like building embedded systems in Elixir. Like, so yeah, I guess like, Give us some background, like how how did you get started with nerves or just embedded systems and what made you write that post? What experiences led to you writing that? All that stuff. All right. Yeah, just tell me to shut up if I go to one. Okay, so in now I gotta I gotta go back in my head. Um back in your noggin. Well I, I do what? Go back to your, your noggin. Back in your noggin. That's trying, that's to, right. trying to put it back to your, your company. Give you a plug. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. We need it. So yeah, I went to Elixir Days the last year that it was in Florida and spoke there and I met Frank Hunleth there, who was creator of Nerves. And I had, maybe I should go back a little bit further. So I had been in the Air Force for 13 years and I did satellite and radio communications. I fixed satellites, uh, communication devices, not satellites themselves. Those are in space. <laughs> So, you know, getting out multimeters and things like that was really interesting to me. I Programming was still my passion, but I really like hardware. So for a long time, I did hobbyist hardware things. Helped out on a device called Tessel, which ran Node.js, which I thought was kind of a really cool thing for hardware and the event loop. And um, then eventually hated it. I'm not the the biggest fan of JavaScript and, and Node. I think TypeScript makes things better. But I look at Node. Node is a gen server. It's a single loop that runs over and over. It's a gen server with with maybe uh, some basic task stuff that you can do. And so doing things in parallel, the, the startup times, everything like that was just not not what I wanted it to be. And then I had written some secure chat software that the server was in Java. So this is like a big roundabout way to get to nerves here. And whenever... We started to try to federate those servers. The more servers that we had, we found things were were harder and harder to do, harder and harder to deal with, especially in the Java land. So we kept the client written in Java, but the team, I was no longer on that team, but I had a security clearance and some background knowledge that I needed to be able to, to help out on some things. And so they started writing and rewriting the server in Erlang. And the fault tolerance and the distributed nature of it made it actually like, really nice and simple to look chat is is like right in the wheelhouse right and distribute and multiple nodes connected to each other right in the wheelhouse of what the beam does and at the same time shortly after that is uh, i was involved in rails and jose was starting to to come out with elixir so long story jump into florida so I happened to be at the airport at the same time as frank hunleth on our way out after the conference and i just stopped and started talking to him and he said, hey, I, there's this thing called Grove Pi. It's got a bunch of I, I2C connectors and 
can plug them in and I really want to write a library for it. At the time, I was between some contracts and had a little time. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to get into this and see what this is all about. I love hardware. I have worked on it in the past. And so I started started digging into it and, and writing a Grove Pi library. It needs to be dusted off if anybody wants to use it now, but it's still sitting around there. And it allowed some quick prototyping and things like that. The next year at Elixir Days, I did, an, I did my talk on NERFs, actually. But it was more about testing and how to how to build a system, even if you don't have the hardware in place. So we used a lightning sensor that Frank Hudleth had sent to me. And I wrote all the code with tests and never ran it until I was on stage. And then I brought a Vandegraaff generator to generate some light. And it worked. It worked on stage. It aired once and then and then worked the second time. And it actually told me that it was man-made lightning, which was really kind of cool because the sensor had said that it would be able to tell if something was man-made interference or, or natural lighting. So I guess that's my my nerves trip into nerves. Actually, I want to talk about the like the localized testing part because when you test, right? I mean, you can still test, but you can't really test for everything because I mean, you're you're missing that hardware input, so you can kind of stub things out, right? Isn't that how you would test the stuff? Yeah, that's really what I did. Is so all of the components that you would interact with have data sheets and those data sheets are remarkably accurate sometimes they're they're hard to read at first until you get used to reading them but they're they go through a lot before any hardware comes out with with a data sheet there's there's a whole lot of checks and balances there to make sure that the data sheets are correct because you have a lot of companies depending on these components the only time that i've found them not and while the data sheet was fine, I've had faulty hardware before, which is also kind of rare. Um, so I just wrote, you know, like the nice thing about functional programming in Elixir is you can have all these data in, data out functions. And so you can take that that data sheet and you know what, what the device should be sending and what you want to come out of it. And then quickly changing it from the binary that comes out of the device into atoms or data structures within your app. So you have these little conversion functions that convert all that. And that's that's like your whole hardware layer. And you just have to write that that conversion. And then binary pattern matching in Elixir is makes that super simple. Like if you're writing that in C, you're doing bit shifts and all kinds of things. And sometimes it's hard to read without having the data sheet next to you of exactly what this is doing. But with the binary pattern matching that's built into Elixir, you like take the data sheet and you just type in exactly what the data sheet shows. And then that's your function head. And you can have it convert to whatever data structure you want. And so writing those tests is pretty simple. And then, and then after you get out of the hardware layer, now you're looking at, at normal testing that most of us are doing all the time. And so you just you get to that level. And what that buys you is that now I don't need the hardware. right? Especially in, in our current world where supply chains are, are a lot slower than they used to be. Maybe you can't get hardware for a while. And so what can I do to to be able to move forward without that hardware in place? Um, and I gave that talk before we had supply chain issues. So that was really weird <laughs> that, that, that it really applies today. But then even outside of supply chain issues, deploying to hardware, restarting in hardware is a lot slower than what you can do on your, your development machine. So if if you can develop on your development machine, that also saves time and money. So I guess, I mean, full disclosure, I have, I'm yet, I have yet to use Nerves for a complete project. I have done the initial setup a couple of times. I think this was like a while ago. And I, I remember it used to be very hard to set it up and like not run and stuff. And just, I was the guy who's done it two or three times and quit. <laughs> like, okay, this is not going to work. But it looks like you obviously have enough experience with this in your on your website. I can see that you list is listed as one of the services at least i imagine the iot it kind of mm-hmm. a subset of the nervous development is a subset of that so I would, I would love to hear about the projects you have been involved in as part of binary noggin do, doing nerves uh you know maybe if you can disclose what companies you work with and what type of stuff are people using nerves for today yeah i think the the two biggest that i can talk about is um I worked with Frank Hunleth at SmartRent, so doing um, their base station, uh, came in to help out with a protocol and and 
there were they had a chip that they were using and, and using a protocol for it. Unfortunately, there were some things that came to light from the company that made that chip that they were like, oh, you don't have to do all of this protocol work because our chip has a, a RESTful or HTTP interface on built onto it that you can actually use and you're more likely to pass our security on it. So we ended up getting rid of a lot of that. But in the meantime, we we spent a lot of time there talking about testing hardware and everything and, and setting up testing strategies. And I think that really, really worked well for them. And, and they are they're all over the community now. If you if you look, they're supporting everything. I mean, they got Frank, so of course they're going to support everything. Is they're a fantastic group of people that work there. And then the other really really big one, and this is something that I find really interesting because companies don't talk about it, is Schneider Electric. So in the United States, a lot of people might know them as APC, but they they make un- uninterrupted power supplies and power management and and battery systems and all kinds of things. And they have some battery systems that are used to keep power clean and, and buildings running, even even during power outages. And we replaced the network management controller in there with Elixir. We worked with their team. Their team was you know uh, C developers, and there was one internal person who was kind of a champion there to try out Elixir instead of using the RTOS real time operating system that they were using. And so he he knew it, and and then they they had me come in, and we worked together with the C developers, and they're still writing Elixir today, and that's been a, a few years. One of the best ways to know that they're still writing Elixir, because they again, the company doesn't talk about it. I'm trying to get companies to talk about it more. Is that they are that if you if you go to I think SSE APC is their GitHub account, and you can see that they have elixir and nerves libraries there and they're they're updating them themselves and giving back to the community and so it's it's like obvious that they're still using it because they still have development going on on the open source side of what they're doing too and that that, i don't know that was a really really cool and fun project and i got to go to ireland so can't complain a whole lot (laughs) that team team is out of galway ireland so gotcha Um, shout out to them if they're listening (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is quite interesting. I had, I mean, you mentioned that it's big. I had never heard of them, but now that I'm seeing the GitHub, it looks like they have some active Elixir development going on. That, that's really cool. Yeah, and they're really one of the largest companies in the world too. So it's, it, I don't know. I just know nobody in hardware is talking about what they're doing. And we recently did a, a panel discussion at Codebeam with Frank Hunleth and Andy King, no relation to me, and Boyd Molter from Crichton and Scenic. And so we talked a lot about how even when, like in the web side, everybody seems to share everything. In the embedded side, everybody seems to not share anything. And it's starting to to get a little better. A lot of embedded systems companies used to play their cards close to their chest, I think. And they were worried about patents and things like that. But I think they're starting to learn that the software side of that probably is going to benefit more from sharing. The hardware side, maybe maybe you need to keep your patents, right? Like somebody can just go copy your chip a little bit cheaper. That's not going to go over well. But so that, so they're starting to talk about it more. But then also we get the we get developers in there and they jump in and they're they're using nerves and but they would never describe themselves as an embedded systems developer. What I can tell you is like Adi, you said that you Adi, right? Is that how you say it? You asked how to say mine. Now I'm asking how to say yours. There you go. Uh, <laughs> nice. So the like you tried to set up nerves and everything. Once you get things going, you know you are an embedded developer, whether you realize it or not. And you're going to start everything that you're going going to do. You're gonna be like, oh yeah, this is exactly how I would do it in any other Elixir project. And you know, there's there's a whole lot of uh, libraries and things that people have done to make it so that put it pulling in a new sensor is not a big deal. You read a data sheet. Once you can read a data sheet. You're and, and you can you know Elixir. You're an embedded developer. Congratulations! So all of those skills transfer on both sides of that. That's really cool. I think you're totally right about like the embedded companies not talking about it. I mean, even Smart Rent. I think only last two years they started being more open, at least from what I can see. But I know there was there were other there's some of the consultancies. There's a company called Very Possible mm-hmm. or something like that. They do some of this. But recently, I learned this. Like a, I think four or five energy, purely energy-based companies that are using embedded systems to kind of like minimize a business's energy's uh, footprint, and most they're using Elixir. 
I was surprised. Mm-hmm. I know there's like Spark Meter. Yeah, there's so many companies. Great point. I, I don't even know that these companies exist, and let alone that they're using Elixir and they have like over 50 Elixir embedded engineers. That's crazy. Yeah, it is pretty wild. And then those people, because they know Elixir, they can work on both sides. They can work on right. like the server and website as well as the embedded side. So it reduces what a company even needs to get going totally. and the amount of communication you need from teams. Yeah. Because they all are speaking the same language. Do we mind to kind of define what the word embedded means? Because like, because you're actually using a version of Linux, right? So it's like, well, if I'm using Linux or any other desktop P or any other kind of desktop OS, does that mean I'm also an embedded developer? You know, like how would you describe what an embedded developer is? Because I feel like the line is a little bit murky to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, because there there is a level of embedded where you're not using Linux, right? And you get pretty yeah, low like Arduino, then, right? Like that one is right. OS is what I understand. And that one I right. wish I could understand. Yeah, you, you kind of have a boot sector that says, I'm going to run this one program. And, and then you write that program. Yeah, so when I think of embedded, I think of single-purpose machines, right? When you have a laptop, you get to install all kinds of things on it. Uh, you could be a designer, you could be a writer, you could be a programmer, and you're going to put different things on that laptop, but it's still the same device. It doesn't change, right? So an embedded device to me is... it. One is small. You're probably not going to have an embedded device that has the same processing power as, as your laptop. But it is a device that has a focused job, and that's all it does. It does this job, and it does it well. Probably doesn't have much of a screen, or if it does, it's it's not going to be like what, what you're used to with a laptop, right? It's going to be more like a kiosk, like an ATM machine or point-of-sale machine. Right. It's not something you're not going to add an application or open up an application. And, and that's to me, that's like the big difference. I'm sure that there are other people who would, who would get more minute detail. But what I'm trying to get at is, is the development side is the same. It's, it's yeah. not any different. I don't want people to be scared of it. Yeah, because for me, it's getting murkier and murkier these days. So like I just picked up a Steam Deck or this. Well, it just came to Hong Kong, literally, uh, like on Monday picked up and because it's been out in the US for, I think, for a while that one I mean it looks like a handheld it seems like a game gear but you can flip it to a desktop mode and it's basically a PC you can use it just like a PC now what is that that's like a hybrid kind of thing because like if you go back to your definition it is kind of similar it's just to play games but then I can flip it to desktop mode literally I could there's a web browser Firefox already installed I can install whatever things I want now is that just a PC on the SOC or <laughs> this is where I get a little bit confused if you look at kind of like your one thing, right? And originally, it is kind of one purpose, play games. Now it's, mm-hmm. I can do more with it technically, but even though if I don't use more with it, I don't know. You know, now I'm starting to get lost in my own thoughts. I don't know what to think about it. It's just I said, it's getting murkier and murkier these days, you know? Yeah, I think a lot of it too, especially with gaming consoles, because a gaming console really is an embedded device. It You typically deploy updates like you would to an embedded device if you're going to. It's, I mean... Nowadays, you actually can get updates. At one point in time, your your consoles didn't get updates. Like they they came and they that's how they were. But yeah, like if you have if you have an Xbox, right, then it is focused on what it's doing. Its peripherals are all geared towards uh, towards a single purpose device. Now, the the thing that I think gets murky there is that you can install other things on it. Right, most of these now it's not just a cartridge that you're putting in but you like you said you can have a web browser you can you can do all these other things so it does it it does get a little little murky in there but i think also that's because our systems that we're using to build those are getting closer and closer to looking like our laptops right we have this we, we you put linux in either one you have the same operating system sometimes and once you do that you kind of open up the door to be able to do a lot more. I also kind of think of embedded systems as things that interact with the real world, but that's not always true, right? And like a gaming device, it's it's not the same as like turning on a valve or turning off a valve or listening for a temperature update and and doing reacting to that. So it it does get murky. There, there's a there's a line there. I don't know where it is. I think it moves all the time. <laughs> totally, I think it totally moves. I, I think the. I do agree with you where that embed system generally has like a single purpose, but I guess like, you know, like consequence of Moore's law, I guess, right? Like the ability for small things to process more information keeps increasing and like this, maybe no need for them to be single purpose anymore, right? Like you have like, because uh, we used to think like microprocessors doing this reading data from X, that's an embedded device, but now you can pretty much at the same cost have like a po- more powerful computer 
that could do that mm-hmm. um, and why limit it to only one thing but yeah it's, it's tricky the definition is getting more and more gray yeah i i think it might be really important there i don't know this is, this is just me thinking out loud but it may be really important to say that it's a purpose built device where your laptop is general purpose but something that's a gaming machine is is not general purpose even if it has the ability to become that a little bit especially when you get into like let's let's like we talk about manufacturing and robotics right once i i i might have linux running inside of that robot but i'm not planning on uh you going up to that robot and using it to to program or browse the web like that's not its purpose even if you can get in there and add a web browser to it that shows up on a little screen on it that doesn't that's that's not really the the purpose behind that system when you built it. It kind of reminded me of Silicon Valley where that guy hacked his fridge to bug one of his uh, friends or something. Have you seen that episode? <laughs> I, not. I forgot what it did. I think it said some like very nasty things to one of the guys or something. I, I forgot what it what it was, but I just remember he hacked his fridge to do something he wasn't supposed to do. So, but then when you said that, made a comment, it just reminded me of that. Like, yeah, that now it gets also murky too because yeah, you can take these single purpose things, you can you can repurpose them to do more than what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Which I think actually most of our careers like that. Like we, we get uh, kind of like a lot of really weird like requests. Like, can it do this? Can it do that? And you're like, I don't know. I, I think so. But should we? Yeah. Innovation comes from using something outside its intended purpose. Or sometimes, you, you know, as a consultant, right? You and I both do consulting. So like we've gotten, mm-hmm. we've gone to places where it's like, wait a minute, you're, you're using Excel to run your entire company and it's on a <laughs> shared drive. And the file system is unable to lock it. So how do you manage like when people are writing at the same time? Well, that's why you're here for this problem. Or or like, yeah. oh, we just like email copies around and we just kind of sort it out after a while. <laughs> oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Hey guys, I'm working on this. Don't touch it, please. That's right. That's sorry. That's yeah. That, that I think it's <laughs> called a, we call that in programming. What is it? A lock. Yeah. A mutex, right? So they have an email based yeah. mutex. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't know how often I run into that. That's like that's like the sales tactic for consulting. Hey, show me your spreadsheets. <laughs> oh yeah, now you remind me of, of Dilbert when they they go to this bar and there's like a merging acquisition. Hey, you want to merge with me? <laughs> it gets a little bit weird. <laughs> Dude, the number of startups who basically just got to Series A by replacing spreadsheets—it's crazy. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. It's the biggest hidden. I guess still, there's a lot of business potential. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's everywhere. There's all kinds of little things that are very manual in spreadsheets and that can get automated. So yeah, if, if anybody out there has a bunch of, a bunch of business ideas, I'm sure that Alan and I would be really happy to talk to you about how we can expand your businesses by eliminating your spreadsheets. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through my, most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just, fill it in from there. I learned a lot about Excel when I worked in the bank. It's amazing. Like everything in a bank is run on Excel to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. It's just like scary, the stuff that's running in the back end. You're like, this is regulated business. Are you sure? Yeah, of course. We're doing everything right. Literally, everybody's doing mutex-based Excel file access. It's insane. We can talk about manufacturing. Like why? Why an embedded systems to use Elixir? Yeah, actually, All right. <laughs> actually, um, that's that's one thing, right? But the other thing too is, do you still have Connor Rigby working for you? I do not. I still talk to Connor Rigby on a regular basis, but that's that's here. There you go. There's you a, a general purpose device story, not general purpose devices. The first time I met Connor, we were in the back of a nerves training, helping out, just answering questions and and running around the room while Frank fed his knowledge to everybody. And uh, I look over, and Connor's got a Nintendo DS out. And I was like, man, what is this young guy doing over here? Just playing games in the back of the room. There's there's so much going on here that he could be doing. And I walk over there and I, I was like, hey, what are you doing? And he turns his device over and it's running IEX. <laughs> Wait a minute, what are you doing? I think I've told that story everywhere. But Connor has never ceased to amaze me since that point. Yeah, I think I remember hearing that he replaces Nintendo Switch and, and he replaced, like he's basically buying 
devices and just seeing, can I run Elixir on that? I think it's what mm-hmm. he spends a lot of time doing. He, you remember like the original Pokemon Game Boy games? I don't know how old you guys are. So Connor had told me, I haven't seen it, but he said he made a device that you can plug into your, your Game Boy, how you used to be able to trade uh, Pokemon with somebody sitting next to you. But he made a thing where he could plug it in and connect it to the internet, and you have a device on your side that you plug in and connects to the internet, and so you can trade Pokemon from around the world. Wow! Just for fun, and then you could store those Pokemon too in the intermediary, so that you could just copy them to everybody's Game Boy. I don't know; it was pretty wild to watch it happen. That's cool. <laughs> but because you had Connor Rigby on the team, is that where you guys started getting more and more into using? nerves because i think before you were mostly doing just general consulting software on traditional you know ec2s etc no actually like the the schneider and the smart run stuff was before connor showed up but bringing connor on on board was definitely because we wanted to get more into embedded systems and connor is just a really awesome person to work with so being able to pull connor in and and work with him and learn from him he has the ability to put nerves on just about anything. And that was was really awesome to to work with. And then I know somebody gave a conference talk about it at ElixirConf. I can't remember who it was. Or maybe it was at CodeBeam. I don't know. I've been to so many conferences this fall. But, oh, yeah, I think it was Jason Axelson at CodeBeam gave a talk about deploying, using nerves to deploy to a cloud. And it, that was he was the second person I ever heard talk about trying to do that. And Connor, Connor was the first because that that a b deployment strategy so that's another thing that says like embedded systems are are kind of the same as as web systems is that you can take this deployment strategy that nerves uses and you can apply it to any computer if you can build a linux system for it you can use nerves on it yeah how that actually works is kind of interesting right because you take if i understand correctly right you take basically using build root still or no has it changed still using build root Mm -hmm. build root yeah, and yep. you basically rip out whatever you don't need or 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 maybe it's you add what you need. I forgot if it's an add or take out. I think it's more of a takeout kind of system. Whatever it is, you, you kind of hack, you say, okay, here's my base image and I only want this stuff that I need. So it's right. super... Like, and it's also kind of read-only to a certain extent, no? It, it is. Uh, your system level part is read-only. There's a write partition that ends up on on the system so that you can you can log some things. But... Yeah, the the actual operating system portion is all read only, and then it does an AB partition too, so that if if your stuff that comes up fails to come up, it'll automatically roll back to the old version, which also builds some safety in that people are always worried about like breaking their hardware that they bought. Well, this this takes care of that for you, and you don't have to worry about it. Now, have you ever had that problem where B didn't roll back on and went back to A? No. Oh, yeah, that I thought you were saying breaking. Yeah, I've had that where you know something was misconfigured and it the system didn't start up right away or some liveness check failed and it, it rolled back to the other one and it's pretty fast and pretty seamless. Now, how do you know when it, when it rolls back? That's something I, I, I understand that it does that, but I didn't really understand how you actually know it's not updated. Is it because the features are missing and then you, you know that, that way? Or? That's how I knew. That's how I knew. I didn't. I didn't try to monitor it or anything. You could. You, I mean, you could build stuff into it so that you can monitor it. There, it, you know, if you're not looking at a console on that device, you probably are not going without without like testing it. But I think there's also like Nerves Hub. Is it right? Do you using that mm-hmm. one too? I I am not right now. But yeah, Nerves Hub allows you to control systems and put them into. So you know, if you have a deployment, I'm, I'm going to say a small one. Let's say you have ten devices. And you have like two of them that are test devices, a few of them that are for like regular customers, and then a few of them are for like bleeding edge customers. You can actually control different deployments, and it will give you feedback of of if it if it succeeded or if it failed and rolled back. Then you you can get stuff back from the command line too if you're deploying to a device on your desk from the command line that will tell you, hey, yeah, this worked or this didn't. Now I just made my window bigger. And I saw behind you something in a nice blue box, the Grisp. Uh, oh, yeah, I have. Maybe two it's good of them to kind of talk there. about that one and how it would compare, right? Because it is, it's they're kind of they're not they're kind of competing in the fact that they're kind of like Windows Linux, where it's like they're like they're in the same space, but they're not running the same way, right? If I remember Grisp, it's more like a RTOS or something. It's kind of like yeah, yeah Grisp. Grisp is running Erlang directly on the hardware, and and you can run Elixir on it. 
but it's it's being run at the hardware level and the operating system really is kind of the beam on that one instead of being linux based that is pure does that i keep i'm ducking my shoulder to look at it so because then i'm reminded about it the advantages and disadvantages that i'm not totally sure of i have the grist board the grist two i have two of them and i got them so that i could play around with them but i've never i've never done grisp and anger so i can't can't say that i know a ton of the difference between the two other than the grisp is running the beam like closer to the hardware and and not on top of the linux operating system yeah that, that's the one thing more, I, I wish i could see. be more exciting than that <laughs> okay yeah i think the grisp one was erlang only but i think grisp two were, or at least the later version was allowing you to use elixir that was something that was kind of interesting like that was all like on the was it the, what is it called again we it, it was all crowdsourced quite a few years ago mm-hmm. yeah on uh, i can't remember <laughs> what what that website is called now yeah but yeah that's where i got those is was i i looked up the money and and sat and waited for my year and a half and then they showed up oh yeah and then that, i just barely touched them yeah that's oh man i got so many things like that. If if I had the stack of ebooks I bought, it'd be I'd need like ten houses to fill them all. I keep oh, watch it. If never you, read them. <laughs> if you get into embedded device stuff and you start buy it, you'll just have boxes and boxes full of sensors and chips. And I have, I think I have everything that you need to build an arcade machine, like just sitting in a box somewhere and has for multiple years. Here, I have this behind me. I know this is this is a podcast and nobody can see this, but this is a little... I have a big row of relays. So relays can, with electricity, can, it was like a switch that you can turn on and off. And terminals and a Raspberry Pi hooked to it. And this is so that I can run the sprinkler system at my house on my yard and turn it on and off and run all of that through Elixir or Phoenix or whatever. So there's there's all that's kinds so cool. of yeah I mean it's just in here it would be cool <laughs> if it was actually hooked up to my house but that's what I'm right. saying is like you just start buying stuff because you're like oh I got this project idea and one day one day maybe I'll get to completing that project idea right and I got that idea actually from Todd Resedek who there it's it's older it needs to be updated but he has a project where it's all on GitHub where he, he replaced the sprinkler system in his house and if you've ever had to deal with a sprinkler system in a house the controllers for it, most of them are terrible. And so being able to like have your own interface is, is kind of a neat idea. We moved into our house and it had a sprinkler system and the controller broke. And so I was like, oh, perfect, I'm going to replace it. And then I found like there was in the documentation for the controller when I was trying to figure out what wires I needed to plug into this thing, I found where if I hold two buttons together, it'll reset the controller and then it worked. So it kind of, slowed me down on worrying about getting this project off off the ground. I guess that's what happens when you're an embedded engineer, right? Like regular software engineers, we have a ton of side projects that just sit in our disk hard drive. But if you're an embedded engineer, you have side projects that not only sit in the hard drive, but also in the physical hardware associated with them. That's right. You have have to have hard drives and box drives. (laughs) Fill up these box drives and, and set them all over your house. And if you have a significant other, you hope that they... Don't start yelling at you about boxes of hardware that you're never going to do anything with. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, so are you kind of like me, where it's like you you got stuff coming in from Amazon, and you're like hoping you get home before your wife sees the delivery, and you're like, well, it's kind of scuttle it into the corner, so she doesn't ask you what did you buy now, and and when are you gonna when are you gonna finish the first project you started? In the right, stuff? right. None of them are ever. I don't know that I've ever finished a project at home that's an embedded systems project. Like, I can get it to a certain point where it, like does what I was interested in having it do. Maybe not to the level that I had, but then I'm like, okay, I'm, I, I can do this. I know I can do this. Time to move on. Uh, <laughs> so yes, yes, I, I do go home and, and like, or ship it to the office and, and hide it until I actually have something working. And then I show it to her and she's like, yeah, that's, that's impressive, Amos. <laughs> she's not near as impressed with it as I am. <laughs> well, I mean, so you have nothing working right now that you personally use in, around your house? Uh, embedded devices that I built working around my house. No, not currently. Not currently. Uh, the last thing that I built that I used regularly was a... So I roast my own coffee. And I built a little device that would 
check the temperature and moisture in the coffee as it was roasting and then push it out to a web server so that I could graph it, use that for a little while. The last thing that I built that I never really used was a door alarm, which was just ridiculously easy to build. I just felt like doing it one day and you know, it took like an hour and built a little door alarm. Like it was, well, it was actually, I guess not really, a, I used it on a door, but it was really just uh, an RF sensor and, and, uh, and a light on the other side of an RF light so that you, you cross, you walk through the beam, like a, you know, like a laser in a spy ship and it would set off a little alarm. And then I turned the alarm to silent and had it count just not for anything, just for fun. Cause like, I didn't really care that people walked through that door or opened that door. I just was curious at how it worked. Maybe I should put one in though. Now you see, now you got me thinking though, cause like it's winter time and it's cold and people come in from the garage and leave the door open and forget to close it or they, they shut it, but it doesn't shut all the way. And then I have cold air blowing into my house. And so maybe, maybe I need to bring this thing back out and check and see when my door is open. <laughs> track how long it's open and then figure out sounds like a business idea to me yeah yeah who came in and left that door open that way i can pick which kid to complain at i thought you have like oh, a, one cool an alarm for your thermostat usually to figure out which kid touched the thermostat i thought it was the big one. Oh, that would be a good one because <laughs> yeah that's that's a problem but okay so i just i thought about, about this this was the most fun project it was pretty easy to do but i had a bluetooth rfid thing that i could keep in my pocket I had a batter little battery in it and it was a proximity sensor. And then I set up one in my office with some relays that when I would go walk to my office, it would turn on the lights in the office. And when I'd walk out of the office, the lights would automatically go out. I just thought it was it was really cool to me <laughs> that that I built this thing. And then I had I, I ended up disconnecting it because I had somebody working in the office with me and I got up to go to the bathroom and all the lights went out on them. <laughs> <laughs> so the consequences to hardware sometimes are are a little different to think about. Of like, oh, I want to automate this. Well, what happens? Like when I walk out of the room, but I have a guest in there. Is it okay to have the lights go out? Probably not. But it's just not something that I thought about at the time. Have a guest RFID Bluetooth too that they can hold on to. Yeah, and have it search for anything. <laughs> yeah, that would have been smart. It just it just was not on my mind when I was building. So that one was fun. That's really cool. I'm definitely like this. Give me enough motivation to go go try nerves again. So that's definitely gonna try build something before before the new year. So Tur- turning a light on and off is really rather simple. And I'll start with that. <laughs> throw, yeah, yeah. Throw a Bluetooth sensor on it, and you can do all kinds of things. And you can buy little cheap battery powered proximity uh, Bluetooth low energy devices that that can just hook on your keychain. Oh, the, the best part for me is I just I just take the train up to Shenzhen. I can get whatever heck I want. I, get, I go straight to the manufacturer for even way cheaper. cheaper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that's something I've, I've I've thought about. Right, I'm always thinking um, something I want to build. Like, yeah, I, actually, I had some similar thing to what you had, where you you'd come in and out and things would throw up. Nowadays, you can get that for. I mean, they have all these home things, right? Mm-hmm. That you can do most of the stuff. So it's kind of like it's like similar to your situation with the. The controller, right? You, you you figured out how to make it work again, so then you're like, oh, well, I don't need to build a new one. Although I still want to, but it probably won't be as good as the one that I bought, right? Like I have so much but, stuff like that right now. But there's something about that, right? Like, well, Chris McCord, right? Like, if, if you ever follow him on Twitter or anything, you see that Chris is building his own power tools, and it's like, yeah, you you might be able to get some, but there's something about doing it yourself that uh, maybe it's a little bit of pride. Maybe it's just the learning process. Like I love to learn. So the those things like that you can do around your house. Yeah, I can buy a sprinkler controller or I can build one. Now the building one is going to take a lot of time and maybe get me in, in trouble with my spouse. But as long as I keep the dishes clean, she won't, I can get away with all kinds. Of <laughs> I guess that's that is one of the... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that's also how you get into a big collection of having a bunch of hardware sitting around your house that's like half done projects or or pr- planned projects. Like I have boxes and boxes of hardware that are there that uh, they've never been touched. They're just planned projects. Yeah, I actually we were talking about buying stuff. Like to be honest, I was trying to get into nerves a while back for a couple of different things I want to work on. Like one of them was what I. So remember, remember uh, did, wait, do you know about Huron or Huron? I don't know how you, how you call it. Huron. Yeah, blue, blue heron. Yeah, yeah, blue heron. Yeah, I think I was probably one of the people that tried, was pushing that to get done. 
because I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. really, because I wanted to get like these Bluetooth beacons to get going a long time ago. And my idea was like, wait, what if I sell a bunch of these beacons to like local businesses to kind of advertise, you know, that they're around and try to get people in. So that was something I was trying to get into. And like, I went nuts and I just bought tons of Raspberry Pi screens and batteries. And I got like 50, 16 gigabyte SD cards sitting in a drawer that never been open. Because I, I heard a lot from like um, a lot of the guys in the, in the nurse team that they always brick their SD cards. I'm like, well, let me just... I, at the time, we had Groupon over here. So I just Grouponed a, a crap ton of these cards and just got them all in. And now it's just like, now I lost the motivation and became busy. But that's something I want to get back into. Yeah, you haven't lived until you burnt out a, a couple cards. So you, sh- you should get into that. There's some really cool stuff that you could do. I can see like... Uh, tell, me, tell me if this is your idea because this is what I got whenever you told me about the hardware that you, you bought is like a little screen next to a product. And when somebody walks by, that screen turns on and gives them a little ad for the product. Yeah, that's something I could definitely do. And I think people would buy that to a certain extent. If if, if the box was, was good, I think they would buy it, mm-hmm. right? And also, yeah, you, you'd have to have the right demo. I, you know, I think 90% of it is probably about the demo, right? So like, what is it going to mm-hmm. do? Is it going to make a noise? Is it going to just show something? What's it going to sell? There's lots of this kind of stuff too, right? But I think... Um, the idea, yeah, it could it could work, right? So that's something I was thinking about. Actually, I bought a bunch of, uh, at least I bought two different um, printers, thermal printers, because I was thinking about like writing up like some kind of simple like ticketing system for a restaurant and see if they'd mm-hmm. be interested because there's quite a lot of like bad, there's so many bad products out there for companies that it wouldn't be oh, too yeah. hard to knock them out. But the problem is that there's a lot of stuff that these bad products actually handle for you. Like I was thinking for a long time, oh, what about, you know, I can, I could probably, I could build, you know, uh, a PO, uh, is it POS? Yeah, I could probably build a POS terminal. Yeah. But then I went to the grocery store and then like I was started watching more about what they're doing. And it's like, okay, well, you have to think about all the keystrokes and everything. And this kind of stuff, it makes a big difference, right? And I'm still watching. And then I noticed that the cashier starts putting, like she's got two people eventually that she ends up kind of putting them to the side. So you have to be able to cash like mid orders and say, okay, this, you know, this this guy, they 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 need to go grab something because it's like five cents until they get like 10% off or something, right? Okay, so let's put this guy to the order. You don't want to rescan everything. You don't want to avoid the transaction. You want to park that transaction. And you can park maybe up to five or something if you have a really busy day. So there's like, okay, I never thought about that. That's something to think about. How would I want to do that? And then when you become an Elixir developer, all you ever do is think about, what if this thing breaks, right? Yeah. It's like, well, I don't want to just have that in memory. Maybe I want to put that into like, you know, what is it? This space, EK, or what's it called? Um, I want to say EKS. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's. So put it into debts, right? Because I don't, you know, yeah. if, if it ever crashes, I want to restart everything. Because you know, you think about the because you look at the people who work in the store, they're really painful sometimes because they get drowned out by all the bad equipment mm-hmm. all day long. Well, and then exactly. and then when, when you're doing POS, you also have to start tracking inventory. Like that's a bare minimum to get into the market. Oh, so yeah. you need to track inventory as it's coming in and going out of the store. Yeah, that's that's a. And then if somebody cancels a transaction, you need to put it back in the inventory. Oh yeah. If somebody does a return, you possibly put it back in the inventory, depending on what's being returned. Otherwise, maybe it doesn't go back on the shelf. But yeah, that's a that's that's a big thing. But that you said you said it there about you start thinking about failure, and I think that's actually what makes Elixir great for embedded systems. So when I'm thinking about embedded systems, I'm thinking about manufacturing mostly recently. And whenever you have a robot that's out, I don't know, maybe it's building car doors, right? And it stops working, even for a few minutes. You know, if you're building 30,000 doors a day and, and it's down for 10 minutes, how many doors did you not build? How much money did you just leave on? And not only does that robot stop, but anything that's after it in the line of the factory has to stop because it's no longer getting its supply. And that is the thing that, you know, thinking about that failure and not having to reboot a system, but having your supervisors reboot small subsection, they, they restart up fast. And so you think more about recovery than actually like failure. And, and then when failure does happen, hopefully it doesn't restart a whole system and that you don't go down. And then if it does, can't, instead of the whole system going down, how, since we're thinking about recovery, is there things that we can do to limp along and maybe just reduce our output instead of stopping our output? Because that's money in manufacturing. And that that's really what gets me about using Erlang is, is that's a whole host of problems that if you're coding in C is, is a lot more to think about where 
Elixir and Erling. I mean, there there are libraries in C that help, but it's like built into the beam. This is how it works. And since it's so core to it that you're not reaching for an external library, it is the core of your system. Yeah, we start sectioning off pieces of your system, right? Like when you have your mm-hmm. supervision streaks, say, okay, this stuff grouped together, et cetera, right? That's what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And then configuring those supervision trees to keep from having catastrophic failures is a whole new interesting topic. Transient is your friend. That's so that so that you can have a supervisor that's transient. It's something that fails over and over. But if its supervisor fails, the supervisor from above that doesn't doesn't restart it. Do that for jobs a lot, like background jobs, so that they don't take down a whole system. Which can be good for reading sensors because if more than likely, if there is a mess up on reading a sensor, it's because we need to go back and read the data sheet correctly. But you don't want your system to shut down because of you swapped a one and a zero in there somewhere. I guess so. It was pretty cool. We got to learn about nerves elixir, but also some potential good business opportunities from you guys. <laughs> it does. So I'm like Alan giving legitimate business ideas in on a public forum. Great. <laughs> Do you guys want to talk about something else or should we transition to picks? I know I'm late for you over there. Yeah, I mean, if you have another topic, I'm, I can stick around for, for a bit longer. I mean, I'm all set. I'm honestly like my, I'm not very knowledgeable in this domain. So I, I, I'm, I don't feel very confident bringing up some topics. But I mean, yeah, if, if you guys have, have something interesting. But, uh, I mean, if you want to give like a quick, uh, you know, pitch to Binary Noggin, happy to you know let you do that. Okay, yeah. I can do that. Cool. Awesome. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess you can mention to the listeners, you know, where they can reach you and, you know, what kind of projects you guys have expertise in and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. So here at Binary Noggin, we work with different companies being a project team or helping out on as part of the team, usually using our expertise in, uh, in Elixir and Erlang to help process large amounts of data or even even build your products we've we've been involved with a few startups in the last year we've had two of the companies that we worked with go public on the new york stock exchange so we'll take a little bit of credit for that not all of it it takes a lot of a lot of business sense to get there too but but we've been around the block and seen a few of those things and we'd love to help other people out you can find out more about us at binarynoggin.com or on twitter is binary noggin we're on linkedin too just grab us anywhere awesome that sounds great. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current, keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. I guess we can transition this to picks now. Alan, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, so as kind of alluded to earlier, I just got the Steam Deck in and I've been playing games a little bit crazy. So I think it's a pretty cool thing. So if anybody's a gamer, I think Adi and Sasha are big gamers, right? 
And so I was never the gamer. I mean, I have a Mac. I don't really have a full-time PC. I think my PC is in a drawer somewhere. I never touch it because obviously Windows is not really my, my game. But uh, I got Steam Deck and I've just been buying games like crazy. So I think I have an addictive personality where it's like when I start getting to nerves, I just start buying everything. I got into Steam Deck and now I'm start buying crap ton of games recently. So that's uh, my bad personality. But yeah, I think it's a pretty cool tool. I wonder if you can put, I'm sure you can probably put nerves on it. Maybe I'm sure Connor's probably done it already. So it would be interesting to see. <laughs> yeah, you should, Connor, if you've done that, get a hold of Alan. Tell him, <laughs> tell him about it. I feel like if you, put, if you can put that on a Switch, I'm pretty sure you can get, get it on a Steam Deck. So. <laughs> awesome. Amos, do you have any picks for us? Yeah, I have one. I've been reading this recently, and it's just a really good book. Uh, I'm going to hold it up here for, for you guys, even the listeners can't see it. It's Crafting Interpreters by Robert Nystrom. And it's available online for free, but buying this big, heavy book is also awesome. Support him. And and then you don't have to be online whenever you want to read it. And I, for somebody who stares at screens all day, really hate staring at screens after work. So I like to have uh, dead tree books. So yeah, grab this book. It's really good. There's some really interesting ideas in there that can apply outside of interpreters too. And also help you think about domain-specific languages within your applications if you want to use those. That is, I think he is working on Dart at Google, right? This guy. Oh, I had no idea. I think so. Yeah, he's, he's a pretty smart guy. They're doing some pretty cool stuff with Dart. It's very cool. Dart is really neat. I didn't know it was him that was working on it, though. Somebody just told me, I think it might have been Quinn Wilton, maybe, who told me. Yeah. It, pretty much if Quinn says, hey, I like this book, I'd try to go get it. So it might I have been with Quinn that. who told me that I should read this. Thanks, Quinn. Awesome. I guess my pick this week, I'm trying to come up with something on the spot. Oh, right. I actually uh, saw in some news that AC Assassin's Creed Valhalla is available for free for a few weeks. So yeah, go and, go and get it. <laughs> it's, it's still a relatively new game. And I think uh, it's like a holiday discount that Ubisoft is giving. So Alan, I'm not sure if it works on Steam Deck. I'm pretty sure it will work on Steam Deck. So Maybe uh, you can get a free AAA game. But that's pretty much it. Unless, Alan, Amos, you guys have anything else to add? Uh, I don't. Thanks for having me. I know that we had to push things back a little bit, and I really appreciate you guys working around my schedule this morning. And, Alan, thanks for staying up really late. Now you owe me. So when I go back home <laughs> and I go to KC, I'll be crashing on your couch, and we'll be playing with stuff all night. We'll be building Perfect. nerve stuff. That works for me. We can have some barbecue too. And it, here, I'll, I'll try this. You're in Hong Kong, right? How long have you been there? Uh, wow. Been here. So I was in Shanghai before here for another four years. So I think I've been here for around almost 10 years, nine or 10 years or something. Okay. Then I'm going to butcher this, but shishini. Yeah, that's Mandarin, but yeah, I understand. <laughs> oh, not the same. <laughs> okay. No, no. Oh, be careful what you say. That, that's a that's a very difficult subject to talk about. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure my stepmom's from Taiwan, and that's just uh, like the only thing I remember how to say. <laughs> Thank you. That's what it means. Awesome. Well, this was awesome. It was great having you, Amos. And for our listeners, we'll catch you again next week. Bye. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.